This episode of CougarCast is brought to you by CareerWise. That's CareerWise with a Z. The career field of medical coding was drastically changed two years ago with the introduction of a brand new coding language. As such, the industry needs tons of very qualified, good medical coders, and they're paying good money for them. As a matter of fact, the average medical coder is making $52,000 a year. In as little as four to six months, you can learn how to become a medical coder. You can do so by doing it online and doing it from home and maybe finding a job to work from home and bring in that money. From home. Oh, yeah. Just got to check out CareerWise. Go check out CareerWise. You can ask for a digital career kit or you can even have one mailed to your home. Check out CareerWise on Facebook, on YouTube, or go check them out at CareerWise.com. And remember, CareerWise is wise with a Z. CareerWize.com. And now, after losing to Utah State, it's time for CougarCast. Greetings, my name is Keith Schertz, and this is CougarCast. And this week we're going to try to fix you, BYU football, and all your cold play. Because when you try your best and you don't succeed, when you get what you want but not what you need, and you're stuck in reverse, you need somebody to guide you home. And honestly, when you lose two years in a row to Utah State, nothing can be too dramatic or too heavy-handed. And so, let's heal our hearts to fix you. (laughs) Okay. So, um, all right. Look, it wasn't pretty, obviously. It was really bad. Is disgusting. And BYU is really stuck in a spot where I don't know what they can do to drastically improve. See, here's the thing. What they did well to win a couple football games early on, right? We know what they did against Wisconsin. We covered that in depth on this show. They didn't outplay anybody. They weren't better than Wisconsin. We're we're not a better team than Wisconsin. Right? We just avoided losing. We made enough big plays. And Wisconsin lost more than BYU won. So this season, it's been more about avoiding losses than it has been going and grabbing a win. Like BYU has been more successful when they've done things to avoid losing rather than to go and make some winning plays. And that's not a great place to be when you're trying to win football games. And to be in a spot where you've lost two years in a row to Utah State and three out of the last five against the Aggies, 
tells you that it's close, but they might have a better program up in Ogden. That was just to trigger anyone in Logan. The whole point is that whenever we lose to Utah State, it's always a dramatic indictment about the state of BYU football. It's the first time we've lost back-to-back to Utah State since 72 and 73. It's a very long time. The results of losing to the Aggies has always meant some sort of dramatic shift within the program. I mean, entire offensive coaching staff was fired following last season, and they lost to Utah State during it. Like, if you want to correlate big moves, removals, firings, there's always a Utah State loss right around the corner. Jaime Hill was removed. And if you don't fire somebody on the coaching staff, you know what else you do? You change the quarterback. Historically, that has been the decision that's been made. It's either you're going to fire a coach or you're going to change the quarterback. Just follow the, follow the trail for the last 20 years. That's exactly what happens. You lose to the Aggies, a quarterback is gone, or you're going to see a coach removed. Will not get another chance to help BYU beat Utah State next season. It's that big of a deal to lose to Utah State, and for two years we haven't been close. We haven't been close. This season what will happen is you're going to see the changing quarterback that's what's going to happen, and it's, it's going to come around the bend. And I'm not totally convinced that it's going to make a big difference. However, it, it's also hard to argue that it wouldn't be hard to replace what you're getting right now from Tanner Mangum. I have ridden so hard for Tanner Mangum. I was a Tanner Mangum over Taysom Hill guy. And I still think that that was a defensible spot. You know, people are pointing to, well, look at what Taysom's doing now. Yeah, imagine if we would have used situational Taysom when he was at BYU. (laughs) The way the Saints are using him is how I wanted us to use them two years ago. You know, with uh, the hope that you could get Tanner Mangum to be some sort of efficient passer like Drew Brees. Now, that wasn't going to happen. But I do think that his confidence and everything was all screwed up and messed with. He's had quite a run at BYU. He's, of course, an Elite 11 quarterback coming out of high school. He serves his mission. He comes back. He's thrust into early games. He has the two Hail Marys, which everyone remembers. He then becomes the most important player on the team and single-handedly puts the team on his back to win three or four games against Cincinnati, against East Carolina, and he's protecting the home field as a freshman. He's the only 3,000-yard passer since Max Hall. Like, we're about to go a total decade, a complete decade, of BYU football and only have one 
3,000-yard passing season by a quarterback. That's a quarterback you. Like, if we wanted to argue that we're quarterback you, and we have, and we have for a long time, but we may have seeded the ground there. That might go to Miami. (laughs) Right? BYU may not have a claim to quarterback you after the despicable showing of our quarterbacks over over the last 10 years in terms of throwing the football. So it's kind of fascinating when you take a look at what's happened with Tanner Mangum in his career. He comes in, he has all those things happen, then the next season they decide to go with, with Taysom Hill. This is after a long summer of... I don't know if Taysom Hill is going to come back or not. Um, you know, he comes back from a Liz Frank injury in a quicker amount of time than anybody comes back from a Liz Frank injury. Um, and they've got a whole new offense in place. It's pro style, under center. It seems like that ought to be an advantage for Tanner Mangum. And then... They went and looked at the unbelievable athleticism that Taysom Hill has, and they decided to start Taysom Hill. Tanner Mangum also has a personal, um, you know, it was was public, so that's why I feel like I can talk about it. But, you know, he was engaged to Alexa Gray. She leaves to go play professional volleyball in Korea. And... You know, Tanner's doing what I would have done as a 22-year-old, and he's <laughs> putting these kind of emo emo messages on his Twitter and whatnot. And he, he, he has all that happen. So, And then he can't get in and get a chance to play as a sophomore after putting in the best freshman season in the history of BYU football and being the most important player on the field in several of the games as a freshman. It's really, it's wild. And then he gets his chance finally. It's his junior year. The team's trying to replace good wide receivers like Colby Pearson and Nick Kurtz and Mitchell Juergens. They're trying to replace the best running back in the school history, according to the record books, who had just put in the second best season ever by a running back at BYU. And they're piecing it all together. So he goes in to try to make things work the next year, unproven running back, unproven wideouts, And he doesn't have any playmakers around him. And then he gets banged up early on in the year and tries to play injured. Like, he wasn't really ever healthy. And he has a terrible year. And now everyone is saying and talking about how he's no good and, geez, you know, we're dead in the water if you have Tanner Mangum. Right? It's like, what the heck? How did we get here? Two years ago... He had the most promising young career in the history of BYU football. And now, 
It's his senior year. He's healthy. He's got two road wins. One of them, people consider one of the marquee wins in the history of the program. He hasn't looked particularly good. And he hasn't really made a lot of plays. At the same time, there's been a whole lot of drops. But he's also made some plays. I mean, come on. The pick six against Utah State was absolute garbage. (laughs) I mean, it was a pick on a screen pass. It's awful. It's awful. This is just no escape. That's really, really, really bad. But Kalani Satake's got to be feeling like, geez, deja vu. Right? Senior quarterback. Coming back from injury. You got an exciting young prospect on the bench. And... You've got a first-year offensive coordinator trying to handle things. The team is 3-3. and You've got a couple good road wins. Your offense isn't generating enough points. Right? Again, that quarterback, senior quarterback, unfulfilled potential. Is out there throwing sub-six yards per attempt. One of the bottom ten quarterbacks in the country yards per attempt just like he faced in 2016 he's got a quarterback who's sub 120 quarterback rating but his team somehow has found a way to be three and three with two pretty good wins including a road win against arizona (laughs) but one of the three losses of 2016 wasn't to utah state but that was, that was to me, it's crazy, the similarities. And we'll see how Tanner responds. If I was him, I'd be very upset. I'd be acting all dramatic, and I'd be very mad if I get benched. Not that he hasn't earned it. He has. Right? But they let Taysom Hill continue. Look... In the history of BYU football, this is, again, going back to 1972, because that's as far as they give me box scores. You know, if anyone at BYU is listening, give me more of the box scores. I care. Someone out there on this earth gives gives a care. (laughs) I'll look into your 1960s football. But I'm just telling you that in the history of BYU football, if you have a sub-6 yards per attempt, sub-120 quarterback rating quarterback, you get benched. That has happened every single time. Jake Heaps, he he was absolutely in that land, and he got benched for Riley Nelson. And, and there's countless other examples, right? But when you struggle, you get replaced. There's one exception to that rule. Just one in all, all that time from 1972 onward. And there's been lots of quarterbacks that have struggled. The only one who didn't get benched was Taysom Hill. So, you know, it, it's pretty pretty interesting when you think about it in, that, in these terms. You know, if, if Tanner Mangum's looking at it, he's like, look, it's an extremely similar scenario the touchdown interception rate is about the same. Like, I mean, it is, it is about the same. 
And if you, you know, for the sake of it, Taysom could run a little bit. But this was senior year Taysom. This isn't NFL Taysom. This isn't Taysom of the years before. Senior year Taysom couldn't run. I don't know if you guys remember that or not. He could a little bit, and he could run more than Tanner Mangum, but he certainly wasn't the same guy that we were used to seeing. Meanwhile, behind him, he had a a kid who had 3,000 yards, the most exciting young prospect in BYU football history. You know? Who had the best freshman year. (laughs) So, it's it's kind of, you know crazy and I can see absolutely why Tanner Mangum might get really really mad about getting benched since you know he had to sit and watch Taysom and Taysom got to keep playing and Taysom had one distinct advantage he had Jamal Williams in his backfield putting in the second best running back season ever by a BYU quarterback But that's one of the big differences between this season and that 2016 season is the games that we were were winning in 2016 were because Jamal Williams was absolutely a killer. He was absolutely on fire to open up that year. Just ran and ran and ran. The same thing was for Squally. I mean, Squally was a killer for a couple of those games. But then he got hurt, and then everything went down the tubes, right? <laughs> so what's happened, especially against Washington and against, you know, I, I would even argue against McNeese, and also, of course, against Utah State, what we've seen is that the game has been put on Tanner Mangum's arm, and it certainly was against Cal. So in those four games, he's been able to win one. We're one in three in the games where, you know, the defensive scheme and really the offensive scheme has looked to Tanner Mangum to make plays and to go win a football game. However, I worry about putting a freshman quarterback in who didn't have a year of experience like Tanner Mangum did. I worry about putting a freshman quarterback in to go in there and have to be the guy that makes all the plays that makes everything go. Because Lupini Katoa hasn't shown that he's a game-breaking running back. Squally Canada isn't totally healthy yet. So when everything is on the shoulders of Zach Wilson, what can he do? At the baseline, and this isn't much, at the baseline... One of the questions that you got to ask yourself is, can Zach Wilson replicate this at minimum? Can he get you 5.7 yards per attempt? Can he get you a 115.4 quarterback rating? And can he figure out how to get an average of 21 points on the scoreboard? If he can get you those three things, then he absolutely warrants a chance to play. Because maybe he can give you more. Maybe he can run a little bit. But if he can run an offense and at least get 5.7 yards per attempt, have a 115.4 quarterback rating and score on average 21 points, yeah, I guess play the freshman, right? Of course. And it seems nuts to me. It seems like, well, of course, of course he can do that, right? Right? I mean, you hope. 
the truth is, is it can get worse. <laughs> I think you have to try it, but I don't know. I don't know if it's really going to generate more points. There's a strong chance it would, given how few points we've been able to score. But to me, the change this year makes, you know, less sense than it did in 2016. They ended up staying in 2016. It was the right choice because they ended the year, you know, eight and four and won their bowl game with Tanner Mangum. So it's this really bizarre, like really just this like very unique scenario where the cards are the same. It's just essentially the same. It's just Kalani Satake has different choices to make with his hand. And if he plays them differently, I can see, you know, what that might mean. Now there's other things. There's other factors. How's the locker room going to react? Do they all love Zach Wilson? Is everyone ready for the youthful revolution? We ready to not hear about how our quarterback's 25, but instead he's 18 or 19. I don't know how old Zach Wilson is, but he's either 18 or 19. Is there an energy that will come into the team? Because they have looked flat. Those, those are factors that I can't tell you. I can't tell you that. I know he went out. I know that he scored in his one drive against Utah State. And that's good. And Utah State did have a lot of starters out there. They did also play prevent. And the fact of the matter is Tanner Mangum can score on prevent defense too. (laughs) The problem is is most teams don't play prevent until they've won. The sign of a really good team, by the way, this is the importance of scheme. and, and And this is the other thing that I think is important to note is that good teams can run when the other team knows that you're going to run. This is something I've talked about multiple times over the years on the show. When when the other team knows you're going to run and you can still run successfully, you're good. When the other team knows you're going to pass and you can still pass successfully, you're good. The job of a coordinator is to figure out how to make the team on the other side, feel unbalanced. Or to call a play, so yes, it's a run, but you're going to make them think about one or two things before they actually have to make their move. So, it's an important distinction for us to make here, is when you bring in Zach Wilson you still have the same problem. They're going to force Zach Wilson to prove that he can throw. And maybe he can. And if he can, then they'll take that away and the Cougars have to prove they can run. And so far this year, unless it's Squally Canada, we can't run. If it's not healthy Squally Canada. But that, to me, is the biggest risk with making a quarterback change this time around. See, in 2016, I was really for it because we had Jamal Williams. And you had a chance because you had the only 3,000-yard passer (laughs) who was just coming off that. You had a chance that if you could add throwing into the mix. 
and and be able to throw the football. Now, turns out that it's likely that we would not have been able to throw the football. <laughs> but the the point is is that you want to be able to try to be able to be successful doing both. If you bring in Zach Wilson, he's entering an offense that is not a successful running team and is not a successful passing team. You are looking to him to fix everything. And I don't care how good he is. He's not good enough to fix everything. Tanner Mangum's not. We know that. So is the question, (laughs) can you get a little bit more? I don't know. I don't know if you can. But it's worth a shot, right? At this point, with what you're playing for this year, it's with a sh- it's worth a shot. I think it's probably the right thing to do. It's what Lavelle would have done. It's what history says BYU does. There was one unique, weird, bizarre. <laughs> it was confounding at the time to me. Decision to ignore the history, ignore the numbers, and just continue to write it out. This time, I think it's worth making a change and th- seeing if things get a little bit better. And the truth is, is about half the time it does, and the other half it does not. Backups are backups for a reason, generally speaking. I mean, sometimes you're looking at, uh, you know, your Brett Ingeman. And you're like, oh, let's see what's behind curtain number two. And oh, it's Matt Berry. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Sometimes, you know, you're going to look and it go, oh, it's Todd Mortensen or Charlie Peterson, you know. And oh, let's see what's behind that. And it's Brandon Doman. And it works out. But you can never be sure what's going to happen. Who knows? But I guess we, we, we got, I mean, there's only one way to find out, right? This isn't like the pro game where, you know, Bill Walsh famously said, we're one injury away from being a good team. <laughs> there's the politics of whoever's getting paid the big contract. You know, they got to play. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't totally exist at the college level, certainly doesn't exist in terms of, well, seniority gets to play. I mean, these guys are playing a lot of freshmen. There's a lot of guys out there that are getting a look and getting a chance to play. They're going with their best guys. So I don't think that that uh, Mr. Walsh, Mr. You know, I, I I don't believe that that adage is going to be applicable to the college game, and it won't necessarily be the case here. But if he can go in, change the spirit of the team, give them a different energy, a different edge, if his elusiveness helps solve some things because, you know, maybe the offensive line is fallen off, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But um, I do think that what you're going to see is that Wilson's going to get a chance. I just, I think that people need to relax a little bit 
and and somehow believe that that's going to secure suddenly we're going to be a team that that can score points the way Utah State does. Because I, I, <laughs> I, there's too many other problems. There's too many other problems. You know, last bit on and and all this conversation has been spurred on by Utah State, and I'm sure that if there's any Utah State fans listening to it or if they heard it, they would just be you know squealing with delight. But it's been now for three years. I've talked about the defining aspect. I talked about it at the beginning in the very first episode of this season. The defining aspect of the BYU football program is the fact that they cannot beat the University of Utah. Since 2009, BYU has lost every single game against the University of Utah. And it's honestly the defining aspect of this program. Has not, like, again, the argument is you can't achieve any of your goals. You can't achieve any of your goals. Well, look, you lose two in a row to Utah State. It's like, forget trying to figure out how to be Utah. Let's try to figure out how to be Utah State. Good grief. There's a lot of problems. There is so much going on with that program right now. And, you know, it may be independence. It may be coaching. It may be the kind of kid that we can recruit when it's 2018. I think it's fair to wonder administratively, you know, are Brian Santiago and Tom Holmo resting on their laurels? They've had a a very fruitful and successful time. They've been in charge as athletic director for a very long time now I've had a good run and where they took it from 2005 to now it's unbelievable what they did he's made some good hires and the expansion and the growth of all all of the sports like that he's done an unbelievable job but feels like things are slipping it's not just feels like they have it's not slipping you know we've been to the bottom we're growing now we're trying to grow so yeah you know it may be too dramatic but i don't know you just lost to utah state two years in a row three out of the last five times we've met them that's a big deal and give credit to utah state they're better that's a better program but byu can't be in a position where you lose to Utah every year, and then three out of the last five years, you've lost to Utah State. So three out of the last five years, you've been the worst team in the state. That's a fact. And we'll see what happens when we play Utah this year. I guess I included this year, like we are going to lose to Utah already. But, uh, I mean, can you blame me? This is on all sides, by the way. I know I just took it out. And I, fans have their spot. Having support from fans, having a lot of fans come, uh, you know, increasing season ticket sales and Cougar Club memberships and, and really full stu- student sections, all that stuff. That all comes with having a good team. When you don't have a good team, you lose fans. You lose people that give a crap. People that 
take the time to get off work early so that they can go and get their family and make the drive and get to Lavelle Edwards Stadium and Park so that they could be there on Friday for the first session against Utah State. The fans are going to do what they're going to do. The, the biggest variable, of course, is what happens between the lines and what the players do and what the coaches do and what the program itself does, and then the least culpable are the fans. But the fans could even get better, and I, I, I even say that about myself. There's just a long way to go. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things that are troubling for the fans. I don't know that fans are totally sold on independence, although they should be. I don't know that fans are totally sold on the future of football. I mean, I'm certainly part of that problem. But again, that comes and is generated through this idea of losing to Utah State three out of the last five years. Like, you know, fans could say, well, is independence working? I'll tell you what, independence will work when you start beating Utah State. And you don't lose two in a row to them. <laughs> Independence will work when you don't lose to Utah every freaking year. That's when Independence will 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 make more sense. <laughs> like it's hard to to believe in it, and I get it. My cynicism is probably part of the issue. And when I blasted fans, and when I that's part of what I was talking about. But there's this idea among everybody who's calling for Zach Wilson that Zach Wilson's going to come in and he's going to solve everything. And I first said that in this podcast referring to what's happening on the field, but we're talking about all of the stuff. We all want to feel good about the BYU football program again. We want to feel good about our ability to compete and keep up within this world of college football, be able to compete on a national level, finish years, you know, really threatening and have a wonderful record. Also, it's been so long since that's happened. We had a little stretch of it, a little taste of it, thanks to guys like Austin Colley and Harvey Unga and, and Max Hall and John Beck. And so... There's obviously a lot more going on. And that frustration that we're all feeling is not going to be solved by Zach Wilson. It's going to be a long-term fix. Maybe Zach Wilson will solve it long-term over the years. And that would be quite a legacy. John Beck did it. You know, people were feeling really bad about him, but by the time he left and not him, the BYU football program, but then by the time he left in 2006, you know, he, he had worked really hard. And by the time he was, you know, a senior, they went out and were really great. And that's a big piece of what John Beck's legacy is. Maybe that's what Zach Wilson will have. But conversely, on the same time, to, to think that all of the pains that fans are having and their dissatisfaction with the BYU football program and the irritation we had with Bronco and um, the the irritation that we're feeling now with Kalani, which is kind of carried over from Bronco, but is now manifesting into, you know, worse performances on the field. To to say that that's Tanner Mangum, that it's, it's, that's, you know, 
And that it gets it's just as silly to blame it all on him there too. Though the the pick six was really bad. <laughs> okay, look, this is the sort of discussion you have to have after you lose to Utah State. And so that's where we're at. Uh bounce back game potentially against the University of Hawaii, who knows? But that's not an easy Hawaii team that we're about to face. We'll talk about it. The Hawaii Rainbow Warriors come to Provo, Utah this weekend with a 6-1 and record and a three-game winning streak. They've had an awesome season. I like this football team, and I like what they do. I've had an opportunity to watch three of their games to get ready to talk about a little bit about what they do. But let's go through their season, okay? A 43-34 win at Colorado State to open the year. Then they go home, they play Navy, and take it to Kenny Niamatololo. <laughs> and by take it to him, that means 59 points against the Naval Academy. 59-41, the score there. Then they play Rice at home. They they score 43 in that game and win by 43-29, their only loss of the year. They went all the way from the Hawaiian Islands, played all the way over. On the East Coast, played at West Point, played Army, and they're very, very good. Triple option attack. And really struggled. Had a hard time with it. You know, it was a 6 a.m. kickoff Hawaii time. So think about that for a second. They ended up losing 28-21, and Army did some good things in that game. We'll talk about it. Then they come back home. They played Duquesne, and they win. They should. That's an FCS team. They handle them 42-21. to 21. And then they go on the road. They get a big win over San Jose State. A five-overtime game. They grind it out. And those points, you might say, well, okay, they got to 44 points because it went to five overtimes. They only scored 13 points in the overtimes. Nobody could score in the overtimes. It was unbelievable game and uh, anyway so they get a win against the Spartans of San Jose State who aren't very good but the fact of the matter is is sometimes you've got to pull out wins and Hawaii found a way to do that then last week I watched this game they played the Wyoming Cowboys and they won 17 to 13 so their score went way 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 down against Wyoming Um, and the question is is why well it starts with their quarterback. It looks like Cole McDonald, their sophomore quarterback, he's been absolutely awesome this season. He's been a freaking monster. 2,100 yards passing for Cole McDonald. He's been lights out. And he's averaging 8.8 yards per attempt. And this is the best part, man. 24 touchdown passes with two interceptions. That's remarkable work remarkable work from their sophomore quarterback absolutely awesome six games 2100 yards in six games (laughs) it like deflies like it just doesn't even seem like how can a team possibly even do that um but yeah quarterback rating of almost just under 170 so yeah cole mcdonald he can do his thing. Uh, their backup was Cordero. Now, Cordero, Chevin Cordero, was not as good. He's a freshman. 
He didn't look as solid. He he really struggled against Wyoming, and I think that that's what happened there. But he came up completely clutch. He made a drive with the game on the line, a 13-10 game, last drive of the game, and he went down the field and was able to score in front of the home fans in his very first college football experience. So, you know, they made some plays, and to me, that shows, you know, they were able to overcome kind of a quarterback that didn't play very well. 5.1 yards per attempt, two touchdown passes, one interception. I mean, he, he wasn't he wasn't super good. But the thing is, is it looks like Cole McDonald's going to be playing. And so they're going to have their main guy at quarterback coming in, and he's awesome. If not, though, you do have to worry They've got a core of four wide receivers that I really like them. In particular, of course, is John Ursua. Uh, Ursua is awesome. What a great player, man. 55 catches on the season. <laughs> He's like, he might get he might get 100 catches this year. That's wild. 800 yards receiving. He's got 12 touchdown catches. He is the nation's third leading receiver. Cedric Bird is a beast. JoJo Ward is very, very fast. If you aren't careful, you will get beat downfield very quickly. They have him always line up on the boundary side of the field, and he just basically runs streaks all game long. Um, Yeah, anyway. Then uh, the last guy, and this is a guy that has had the least amount of production, but is a guy that I really like um, from what I've seen from him is Marcus Armstrong Brown. He's uh, He's a senior. So it's his last year, but he's big. He's six foot four, two hundred and ten pounds. He knows how to use his body. He's a guy where they have to get the yardage in the moment. They're gonna they're gonna make sure that they go ahead and get it. Now we covered this last week when we talked a little bit about Utah State. It should also scare you with Hawaii. They've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight wide receivers that are averaging over ten yards a catch who are averaging at least one catch a game. So, impressive group there. Running the football for them, not as strong. But more recently, they've started to lean more on Dayton for uh, Feruda. Now, Feruda is... How do I want to put this? He would make Fui Vakapuna look small. Or Manasseh Tonga. He is huge. He does not look like he should be playing running back at all. Okay, they have him listed at five eleven and two fifty. I I think that's probably a generous number. He's a big boy, but he's averaging six point three three yards per attempt right now. So, Veruta for me is in you know you would think oh well they're going to use the beef on their short downs and by the way they do. Their situational stats absolutely show that Feruda is a third down and short guy, okay? And they faced a third and one, a third and two, or a third and three 13 times this year. And they have 11 first downs in those circumstances. So they go ahead and convert third and one. They convert third and short. They find ways to make that work for them, okay? And otherwise... They do a great job of trying to make you really feel spread out. So, to me, even though he's the backup running back, the guy that scares me is Feruda. They have another guy, Fred Holly. Holly is fine. 
he's one of these guys that they they used a lot. They've gone away from him more as as the season has gone on. And what we've seen is is you know I mean Holly is less than five yards a carry. He's four and a half yards per carry. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's fine. You can go to work with that and, and let him work in that way. But I think that what we're going to see is, is you're going to see Feruta used more extensively for them in the run game. So it, it'll be interesting. Beyond that, he's as big as he's as big as an offensive guard. So uh, you know he, he's probably good at pass pro, or at least he should be. Um, <laughs> so so that's what I see. Look. Again, same thing, you know, the argument, I hate it when people make the argument, oh, well, they, they, they haven't played anybody. They, they haven't played good teams. I hate that. We made that argument against, you know, Utah State. There's a lot of people making that ar- argument, and I said that shouldn't be an excuse. BY, people would say that about BYU teams that were good on offense, and then we would light them up. So this this concept that, oh, well, you know, it, it doesn't mean much that they scored like 45 points a game. That's just, that's, that's ridiculous. That's craziness. Okay. So for me, I, I really like what Hawaii can do offensively. And the point of this is just to say they're going to score. They're going to score quite a bit. The way that Army was able to slow them down came not from having a sophisticated, scheme that really you know held hawaii in <laughs> no that's it's not what happened it wasn't like army came up with this unbelievable you know defensive uh, plan to handle hawaii's offense because look cole mcdonald against that that team he went 20 for 32 he threw for 321 yards that's over 10 that's just a just a hair over 10 yards in attempt he had two touchdown passes and and, and zero picks well something must have happened with the running game right were there any fumbles no there was no fumbles so they didn't turn the ball over no okay well wait a second how did you keep them there was no there wasn't a turnover issue Right, and how on earth then did you keep them twenty-one points? This is how they did it: time of possession. That's it. Hawaii scored twenty-one points on forty-five plays. They just didn't have the ball. The army had the ball forty-one minutes and nineteen seconds of that game. They almost had it for three complete quarters of the game. So that's that's what they did. I mean, they just got the ball out of the hand of Hawaii. They ran the clock. They snapped the ball with very little left, and that that's how you kept them off. That's how they kept them off the scoreboard. They had productive drives themselves. They moved up the field, and they were able to get a couple stops here and there. But by and large, it wasn't a great defensive effort. They got smoked against the pass, and really, that's what Hawaii is looking to do. When Hawaii did run, they did a great job defending the run. Hawaii almost exclusively, you know, they're going to be in the shotgun every every down. Hawaii had 13 rush attempts for 3.2 yards against Army. So Army did a good job when it came to stopping the run. They, they did that. So they held on to the ball. They stopped the run. But that's not really what, you know, Hawaii is going to hang their hat on anyway. 
their whole thing is we're going to throw the football. But between holding them to 3.2 yards per attempt and forcing 12 incompletions, they were able to get enough stops. And, you know, when, when you have that, when you have basically 25, think about that, 25 of the 45 plays were either incompletions or an average of 3.2 yards. Like, that, that means for 25 plays, you know, it, it goes down to, like, 1.7 yards per play. Like, that's really bad. So, that's something that, that you can do, is when they do run, you should really be stout and really stop them. And if you can do that and then force a few incomplete passes, that, you know, you, you piece together those two things, maybe you got a chance to, to try to really stop and, and kind of handle Hawaii. But the way to keep them off the scoreboard is just to keep them off the field. If, if they're not on the, if they don't have the ball, they can't score. <laughs> and, and to me, that, I mean, that's it. Like that's the, that's the entirety. That's the entire way. So far, nobody has figured out how to really slow down Hawaii. Now, I think there's been a lot of people complaining about Elisa Tuiaki. I think there's good reason for that, but I, I do think that, you know, a lot of people are just saying, well, we just got to pressure the quarterback. If you pressure the quarterback, the, the problem with Hawaii is, is you can't really pressure the quarterback. They get the ball out so freaking fast. They, they just, they move the football out. They snap, they throw, and then they move on. You know who else who did that? Utah State. And we looked hopeless. Looked like we had no prayer of stopping Utah State. So I don't know why suddenly we're just going to be able to roll over Hawaii and stop them left and right because we feel good because they've been playing Rice and San Jose State. I don't know. Cougars are welcoming the very first. They're the first place team in the Mountain West. They're undefeated in that league. Like It's not super simple just to go out and beat everybody in your league. Those teams are familiar with you. They know what you want to do. They've seen Nick Rolovich. They've seen these players before. And they've been able to answer the call every single time. So, in short, what, is, what does Hawaii do? Why, why does it work? Their receivers are smart. The receivers are running option routes every single down. They look at what the defense presents, and then they run in a way that gives problems for the defense. They read what the defense is showing. They count how many are there. They look at if they're impressed. Or they look at if they have space. And essentially what happens is they run their option routes. Now, what's going to happen is the guy on the outside, so the guy outside of the numbers almost always goes downfield. Now, usually it's a streak. Sometimes it'll be a little fade. Sometimes a little post, you know, even a corner route. Sometimes you'll see that. And then what will happen is, is based on where all the positioning is, you may have the, the man underneath, usually they're four wide, the man underneath on the slot will make a route, usually he'll go just to the outside, he'll do a little out route, and run into the space that's now been opened up by the corner who's now chasing the man who is streaking down the field, right? And if you play zone... Then what happens is you better get a safety to come over very quickly because the man who's streaking down the field has gone by your zone corner, okay? 
and, and you've got that problem there. And if your zone corner, if, you know, if your zone corner doesn't stay with the man, then what happens is your underneath route is going to be there. And so it, it's really, you know, it's that simple. Is is usually what happens is is the man on the outside runs upfield for spacing, and then what happens is is then the the man in the slot makes a move to try to, you know, he runs to the open space. But there's these concepts that have to be run, and and what happens is you're going to see the same group of wide receivers for most of the game. They do bring in other players, but these receivers are in pretty good shape, and they do a good job of of running. Down after down after down. They don't give away whether, you know, they they don't give away that it's not going to come to them. If, if you got to run hard on your streak route, you're going straight downfield, but you know you're not going to see the ball, but you're just doing your job to open that that space. They have the discipline to do that. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see what they do. And so one of the things that I, I really think will be difficult is when you have all those different moving parts, it's hard for it all to come together, but it's clear. And, and, and by the way, when you don't have a quarterback who's on the same page and understanding what's going on, he looks the way Cordero looked last week against Wyoming. But when they have McDonald, McDonald understands and he sees the things that the wide receivers are going to see and he sees the way they're running and that's how he gets 2,100 yards in six games and throws for 8.8 yards per attempt. So they're really, it's really clever what they do and they really are just, show me what you're going to do and I'm going to attack that and hurt you. So the question is, is can you confuse those guys? And so far, those guys haven't been confused by anybody. The best way to beat them is to simply not let them on the field. So it becomes a, a real difficult task. You've got the one of the best receivers in the country on Hawaii. You've got a talented quarterback. And they know what to do in order to open up that space. And then beyond that, they do this little shovel pass to their running back and Faruda, I mean, oh, it would be no fun to try to tackle Faruda all night. So it's one of those, it's one of those things. We're going to have to see how BYU does to try to, to stop things. But because of the way the ball comes out so quickly, because of the way they understand, okay, here comes a blitz. That means there's going to be less space here. The wide receiver moves into the space where nobody is, and now they've got space to work. And then beyond that, these wide receivers, they catch the ball in stride in this run-and-shoot offense, the spread look, and and then they get yards after catch. And then the last one is, is Hawaii is so disciplined when it comes to what has to happen in what scenario that what they do is is they don't worry about down and distance. They throw the ball where it makes the most sense for the ball to go, according to the read of the quarterback. So if it's fourth and one, and you've got your four wide receivers out, and the formation that the defense shows indicates that all four guys should be running verticals, they're going to have four verts. They're going to run four vert on fourth and one. Like they are very committed to what their system is. And they don't care. If they're going for it on fourth and one and it's a pass play, 
they will absolutely throw the go on fourth and one if that's what the defense dictates. So they're a fascinating team. I, I see them being able to score on us. I, I don't I don't see what what we're doing defense. I mean, there's been a lot of focus on the offense for the last two years. But I may add that for the last two years, the BYU defense hasn't exactly been stellar either. They're getting they've had nineteen tackles for losses this year, which is, you know, fine. That's a little better than three a game. Okay. So that's you know, it's fine. Uh Corbin Kafusi has four sacks on the year. Uh then there was a team sack and Zach Daw had a sack. So that's six. So we're getting about one sack per game. So about four of the downs that we face, we're we're facing, you know, we're we're getting the team to go the, the wrong way. If you look for differential in that, you know, people usually look at just sack differential. And, you know, our offensive line has only allowed six sacks. We have only generated six sacks. So it's about one per game. I mean, that's that's about even. Um, but when you look at tackles for loss, the disparity is huge. 19 tackles for loss for that BYU defense. The offensive line or the BYU offense has had... 35 tackles for loss against them. Almost six a game. So you're going to have seven of your downs on average go backwards. That's just not going to work. It's not going to work. The other thing is, is it's not like, the okay, well, we're not getting and enforcing pressure. Well, okay. And maybe they're related. Of course they are. But the 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 second part of that is how many passes have been broken up by defensive backs okay i'm about to go through defensive backs that have pass breakups on the year chris wilcox has one michael shelton has two that's it we are six games into the season, and defensive backs at BYU have successfully defended three passes. Now, fortunately, the linebackers have done a little bit better. Adam Pulsiver broke up a pass. Matt Hadley broke up a pass. Sione Takitaki has broken up three passes. The other pass breakups that are credited are defensive linemen who batted down a ball. So those count, and they're, they're salient. But 13 passes were broken up and didn't make their way. <laughs> That's it. How about quarterback hurries, times where the quarterback has been forced to hurry the football, the, the differential there. Cougars are averaging five quarterback. They are not averaging. That would be fantastic. But they have five quarterback hur- hurries on the year. And uh, Mangum has been hurried 11 times. So it, it's, ugh, right? Like defensively, it's not been very productive. <laughs> and, you know, they, they've allowed some points to be scored in the last two weeks uh, in particular. And so it, it becomes a very difficult problem. I, and if you average the last two weeks, we're at, we've only forced 12 incomplete passes between the Utah State and Washington game. Now, Washington uh, only missed on two of their balls. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's not great. 
when they drop when other teams drop back to pass, they're completely comfortable. The ball gets there. That you know, opponents are comp- completing sixty six percent of their throws. We aren't gonna really sack the other team. We might get one a game. Looks like we'll get one, and that's it. Tackles for losses, sure, we'll get a few. But when it comes to stopping passes, our, our defensive backs are going to get one pass breakup every other game. <laughs> it's outrageous, right? So the defense isn't good enough either. They haven't done a good enough job, especially over the last couple weeks, to make the difference. Now, against Hawaii, it's going to be huge. They're going to have to really do a great job to stop that Hawaii offense. The good news is that Hawaii's defense can be had and that you can score points against them. The bad news is this is the exact same breakdown I gave of the Utah State game. <laughs> the bad news is we don't know who our quarterback's going to be. It may be a freshman making this first collegiate start. And otherwise, we know it's going to be our senior who's going to go out there and, you know, you know, do his thing. <laughs> He'll do Tanner Mangum things. He's going to get you, you know, fine. You're going to do just fine with him in there. <laughs> You know, the last two weeks, to be fair, to be fair to old Tanner Mangum, he he has been better the last two weeks outside of the absolutely ridiculous pick six, which is the third time I believe I've brought that up during all of this. But, you know, for for sampling against Washington, I mean, he had 7.6 yards per attempt. Against Utah State, he was only at six. So that's not that great. It's better. It's better than what he had been. But... You know, those have been, you know, two of his better performances this year. (laughs) So it'll be it'll be interesting. You know, they were both really bad losses and everything was put on him. So the the question is, is can you can you generate points and find points? You're going to have to you're going to have to generate quite a few points Um, at at minimum. You might hold Hawaii to 17. If Colton McDonald plays at minimum, you can hold him to 21. So long as you hold the football for almost three quarters of the game. Tough challenge. Now, if you think BYU fans and you were disappointed after we lost to Utah State, I'm not sure what people will do if we happen to fall to Hawaii. And if we do fall to Hawaii, I do believe that that would make the running total seven. One in seven, it would be one in seven uh, in the last two seasons at home in Lavelle Edwards Stadium against non-FCS teams. So against teams in our own division, one in seven at home if they happen to lose to Hawaii. It's one in six now, which is bad enough. And so anyway... uh, I think I think that might speak though. I, I mean, again, if we believe that fans can have influence and change things, and they can, um, the fans are culpable for part of what's going on here. So, it will be a difficult game stopping John Ursua, stopping McDonald. It, I'm telling you, this is going to be a, a difficult game. If the Cougars, 
play out of their minds and do a really good job defensively at score. <laughs> like it's just going to be really frustrating. It's encouraging. You'd rather see them play well, but if they play the way that they have been playing, this is a loss. There would need to be some improvement across the board in order to beat this Hawaii team because this Hawaii team has played better than us, especially recently. So it's going to be a a unique challenge, and uh, the Cougars are going to have to figure things out and and really play at a a great level. Again, I've said this about them, but it's completely true. This is a mojo team. If they're in it and nobody expected them to be in it, and if they're winning, then they play hard and they play good. Right? They play with emotion and energy and they look like they're having fun, then great. Right? But if they get down and things start going wrong, these guys give up. They don't have any heart. They're not tough. It took them a quarter to wake up and decide to actually... I mean, they lost a quarter to McNeese. And it took Kalani Satake calling timeout and calling the entire team over to scream at him. Okay? So, they just... these Do they like playing the game? I'm not so sure. Because <laughs> part of playing the game is playing when you're down, too. And they don't seem to be interested in playing if it's not going well. They like it when people tell them how good they are. Everyone does. You got to develop a mentality where you're fine to play hard and be tough and show your very best. And have the character to keep fighting when things aren't going well. And when people say that you don't play good. When you don't play good football and all the fans are saying, oh, well, oh. The way we are. And the way that they've earned. (sighs) I told myself to be careful out there and look at me. I'm all wound up. But anyway. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I got one more thing on the other side. I want to give a shout out to Mr. Paul James. May he rest in peace. He passed away this last Saturday. Paul James was the voice of the Cougars, an anchor on KSL for many years. And Paul James was absolutely outstanding. He did such a great job as a play-by-play guy. Truly the legend, the real voice of the Cougars. Now that mantle gets passed on, passed on, passed on. And Greg Rubel's been really good. He's developed a, a good reputation for himself, and he's had good moments calling things. We will think about him fondly. But PJ, man. Paul freaking James was at the heart of many of the great experiences that I had and was at the heart of really my enthusiasm about BYU sports and secondly, my attempts and tries and experiences in my life being a play-by-play announcer myself and trying that and inspiring me to try those things and also to do this podcast. 
And Paul James would say, that's not a legacy I want. <laughs> now, you know, he he really is he really is something. If you haven't read his book Cougar Tales, go find it on Amazon and read it. There's some really fascinating tales inside of that book. Uh, in particular, he talks about what it was like to be a play-by-play broadcaster during the protest years of the BYU athletic program. He also shares uh, the story of the night that uh, a Molotov cocktail was thrown on the basketball court at Colorado State University during the protest years. That Molotov cocktail that he says went right over his head, and uh, he said it was quite a uh, harrowing experience. The other thing that he had in there, there's, there's a couple other things. One, he started a venture where he started a miniature golf course in Salt Lake City. And to celebrate its opening, he asked a friend of his to bring their hot air balloon. He was giving out hot air balloon rides. And the tether between the ground and the hot air balloon broke while an old lady was up in the uh, hot air balloon. (laughs) And uh, it's a wild story where the hot air balloon ends up crashing on the roof of someone's house. And... The old lady lives, <laughs> and Paul James sweated out big time. It's a it's an interesting story. The other thing that I thought was interesting and curious about it is he added a bunch of like riddles and puzzles and stuff to his book because he really enjoyed those sort of things. And so um, he was a, an interesting person and a, a interesting character, and was great at telling the story of the game. But not only that, making you feel a connection to the young men uh, who we cheer about. We, we really got to feel like we knew who they were. And in particular, as good as he was as a play-by-play guy, I really felt that Paul James shined during the call-in shows. And his interaction with fans and as he worked with Lavelle Edwards and, you know, as Lavelle would answer the questions... <laughs> Somehow that was compelling radio, and we all know the way that Lavelle kind of handled the media. He he didn't really, you know, if people asked him questions and stuff, he he gave the canned response. He he's not he's not the quote machine. Okay, he's not this gregarious personality, kind and everything else. Sure, but that game that the post game shows were were made to be magnetic and interesting because of the talent and work of Paul James, and so. Uh, I really uh, appreciated everything that he did in his career, and I wanted to just take a moment to uh, to to mention uh, one of my uh, broadcasting heroes, and uh, and say goodbye. So uh, he had a fantastic career. He led a great life, and uh, uh, so long to uh, what will always be for me the voice of the Cougars. That's it for this week's Cougar Cast. We will see you next week. I hope the Cougars find a way to get by the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors. Take care of yourselves.